Amen. Good morning, family. How you guys doing this morning? Amen. I'm going to try to be humble after that. Today will be the day that humility died in a, not a great way. Um, first off, I do want to thank Clayton so much. Uh, honestly, I feel like, uh, praise God for elders. I don't really know what more I need to say. If I could just, you know, say, let ditto. Great, let's do that. We can be done here. But uh, before, I, before I get into it, I, I do want to say I, I'm very humbled by what today is. Um, and I'll, I'll get to share a bit um, of <laughs> some of the particulars. But, whoa. What's going on? <laughs> wow. Man, this, this is what happens, huh? <laughs> I just want to say, um, from the bottom of my heart, the, the church family that's been here, uh, between, in, the, in the coastal region particularly, uh, for all of you that were, when we were together in the Norfolk region, let's go Norfolk! And uh, for all the conversations, for all the teaching, for all the discipling, for all the encouragement, uh, I am so grateful and humbled that I, I get to be called your brother. And uh, for me, today is a humbling day uh, just to be able to, to be able to preach the world, word in any case, uh, but to, to be able to be this for the church and serve in this way is an honor for me. So I, I love all you guys, and thank you very much for, for all the support, the encouragement, and discipling over the years. You are invaluable. You are the most important people in the world to me. And so I'm grateful for that. Amen. But we are going to get into it. There is a word to be preached. And I'm going to start off with something, and I hope you'll let me finish this whole sermon before you jump down my throat of how I start this. Jesus wrecked my life. Let me finish. <laughs> Jesus wrecked my life. You know, if you had asked me ten years ago, what I'd be doing with my life, I, was, I would be a, a sophomore in high school, 2004, James Robinson Secondary School in Fairfax, Virginia. I'm old. I graduated in 2006. Um, I'm not old. All of my campus students, though, they're like, oh, my gosh, 2006. They were like four. Oh, my gosh. They're being born in years that I remember. This is not good. But, you know, ten years ago, my plan was not in any way, to be a minister in God's church. My plan, I, I was a big music guy. At that point, God had made it very clear that I was not supposed to be a professional baseball player like I thought he was making clear for many years. Why are you laughing? What? <laughs> no. I was a big music guy, and that was the plan for all of high school. The plan was to go ahead and go to James Madison and and and, and kind of uh, hone my craft as a musician and go into the music industry. And my thought was I wanted to be a Christian music producer and make Christian music listenable. Because where I was sitting, I'm like, I, I can't do it. <laughs> and Jesus wrecked my life. Praise God he wrecked my life. But you know, over th those next few years, especially when I got to college. Jesus made it so clear. That wasn't it. My dream of who I was going to be, who I had dreamed of becoming, what I had worked countless hours, literally every day after school, for several years, 
I was doing music stuff. I was in every band and ensemble and orchestra, everything you can possibly imagine because that was really cool back then. Times have changed, apparently. And then Jesus goes, no. My, my freshman year at James Madison, he made it clear that you can't be the disciple you're supposed to be and the musician that you want to be. I remember sitting under a really large tree at the quad at James Madison, reading my Bible and reading actually the very passage that we're going to study out today. And I remember feeling my soul coming apart at the seams. Feeling like, Jesus, why would you put this on my heart? And then rip it from me. Why would you wreck my life like this? Why would you take the very thing that I am, the only thing I've ever really wanted to be, and rip it from me. I expected different things out of my life with Jesus. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. What do you expect of Jesus? Everybody sitting here, we've got something we, we expect about Jesus. Whether this is your first time at church, welcome, by the way, if this is your first time at church. We're glad to have you here. Buckle up, this is going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> whether or not you've been around church for a few years of your life, whether you're a teen that can't remember a time not going to church, whether you've got a family and you've been going to church for longer than, I'm not going to say it because I'm going to get in trouble, but if you've been going, on, going to church for a long time, we've all got expectations of Jesus. And literally, as our church has been studying out the book of Luke, we've been watching Jesus bust up people's expectations of who he is. And we're going to pick up today in one of the biggest, one of the most shocking times in Jesus' ministry. And the title of my lesson this morning is, Jesus Disrupts. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. I figured if I got through the Jesus wrecked part and nobody tried to throw me off stage, we'd be okay. <laughs> Let's go to Luke 9, verse 57. It says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, Fantastic! Come on! Get in line. That's awesome. Oh, wait. Sorry. No. <laughs> Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says to another man, follow me. And the man replies, sure. Why not? Of course. Now he says, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, okay, we'll meet you up in 15 minutes. No, he says, no. No one who puts his hand to the plow, and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
And we're going to stop here because there is a truckload that just got dumped on these guys and all of us reading this. Time my lesson, Jesus disrupts. Jesus disrupts our expectations of what he's going to say, of what he's going to do, and what it's going to cost us. I've got three big expectations that Jesus ends up disrupting that I think he needs to disrupt for all of us. The first thing Jesus disrupts is the expectation that this will be comfortable. Now, this first guy here, we don't know a ton. We don't know a ton about him. We don't know what his name was. We don't know what was going on in his life. But he does, we do know that he had probably at some point heard about Jesus. Maybe he heard about Jesus from the 12, because the 12 just got sent out at the beginning of chapter 9. And they're going and preaching in every town and village out there. And maybe he had heard from them, and he goes, oh, I want to do that too. And he goes, look, I will follow you wherever you go. The call of discipleship went out. This guy's trying to answer the call. He shows up to Jesus. He's got a big old smile on his face. He goes, I heard your message, and I want in. He sent the request in to join the group. He wants to be a follower. He wants to subscribe to the message. You know, it's interesting. Jesus kind of tells us everything we need to know about where this guy was coming from. I mean, he replies a little cryptically, but it's clear enough. And he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If that were me, I'd be like, so is that a yes? <laughs> Fill out a form, do their dues, like what do I, what's going on here? And who knows, maybe a fox was running by, maybe a bird was settling in a tree nearby. I don't really know. But Jesus is making a point. Look, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Animals have homes. They have places that they found. They have places that they call home. But the Son of Man, which is a way that Jesus used to refer to himself, has no place to lay his head. I am homeless, he says. Even the animals are better off than I am. The animals have a better real estate portfolio than I do. They have invested wiser than I have. Now, why would Jesus say all this stuff? I mean, I don't know if it were me. Oh. <laughs> you got to be careful of that. I don't know if it were me. I would definitely be like, sure, more the merrier. We need all the help we can get. Remember, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Come along. Maybe even, hey, if you know you're homeless, like, great, can we stay at your place tonight? Yeah, but Jesus is disrupting the first warped expectation that we have about him, that this will be comfortable. You know, if, if you're traveling with a king, you figure you get special treatment. If you're in the president's detail or in his inner circle, you're going to get special treatment. Now, if you travel with King LeBron James, you're going to get special treatment. But with Jesus, there is no special treatment. Actually, things get tougher. You know, he's telling him, you will have no home. You will have no AC. You will have no guaranteed meal every night. In fact, there are only two things that you will have for certain. One is discomfort. 
but the other is Jesus. You will have those two things for certain. And I think Jesus tells him this because he had an expectation to follow a king, but he hadn't expected to follow the suffering Messiah of God. I think we need to examine that for ourselves too. You know, maybe we thought it would be easier to follow Jesus. Maybe we thought we'd be more comfortable. Now, maybe we didn't think that all of our lives' problems would be solved, but definitely that, that Jesus would have our back. So maybe things would get easier. I mean, you've got to think, if you're with Jesus and you have the God of the universe on your side, you have to feel good about that. You have to feel like something's going to get better. Maybe you didn't think your salary would go up. Maybe you didn't think your GPA would increase. Maybe you didn't think your football team was going to get better. As a Redskins fan, I can attest to that. (laughs) Being a Redskins fan teaches me how to be a better disciple, though. Suffering and persecution. (laughs) Things don't get better. Now, maybe you didn't think that would happen. Maybe you didn't think that boy would like you if you started following Jesus. But maybe you thought things would get easier. I know for me, my first day as a disciple, I got baptized when I was 13, September 15, 2001. And, you know, my, everybody tells you, well, you're not going to be perfect when you get baptized. Things just don't automatically change in the blink of an eye. It's a process. It's more like your birthday or your wedding day, which meant nothing to a 13-year-old. But I'm like, sure, yeah, definitely, okay. Day one. I remember I came home. I'm pretty sure I came home from church because I got baptized. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Nope, sorry, it was Friday. Um, Nope. So I came home from, from doing something. And I remember my mom told me to take out the trash. And if you know anything about me, that is my least favorite chore. I have no idea why I hate it so much. But when you ask me to take out the trash, I mean like the fire just blows up in my belly. And I remember staring at my mom with the same you know, stare that you probably give to people when they cut you off in traffic. And I don't even remember what I said. All I remember is saying something incredibly disrespectful to my mom. Day one, I didn't make it 24 hours. You had one job, kid. You're 13. It wasn't like you had a contribution to give. You got to give 10%. I don't know why you want 10% or nothing, but it's yours. You got to respect your mom. Not even 24 hours. And I remember this, because I remember my mom looking at me and just being so hurt about it. She'd be like, Matt, would Jesus say that? And in a second... I realized what I had done. And I remember, my th- I'm an emotional guy, so I ran into the next room and started crying. Because I was like, I, 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 I thought it was going to get better. I thought this would be easy. Mom, I didn't make it a day. I can't make it a day. I'm not going to make it a year, the rest of my life. Oh, the world's ending. And, I thought it was going to be easier than this. But, you know, that's, that's what happens. Amen. My mom, you know, cuddled, you know, held me like, it's okay, it's okay. You're st- still saved and everything. And I'm like, are you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
But things do get better. But here's the thing. We expect things to get easy. We expect maybe perfect. I doubt real perfection. But we expect a little bit more comfort than probably what a lot of us are going through and what we've been through. We didn't expect, even if you thought about it, you probably didn't expect the persecution to come your way. You know, we think, you know, I thought Jesus would take care of me. And he does. He is. But sometimes I think we look at following Jesus, we think it's going to be easier because we think we're doing God a favor. All right, I'll follow you. You got my back? Well, I got yours. Okay, great. You owe me one. Me and God, we're close like that. That's not how it works. Jesus is warning this guy and warning all of us that what is promised is not comfort, but it's guaranteed discomfort, but it's also guaranteed Jesus. He doesn't promise us jobs. He doesn't promise you a wife or a husband. He doesn't promise to keep you healthy. He doesn't promise financial security. He does, you know, and as Americans, we need to get over this one. He does not promise that we will be happy. Nowhere in Scripture does he say you will be happy. You know, happiness is easy to get, by the way. I get happy when my fantasy football team wins. I get happy when the light turns from red to green. Uh, what I'm saying is that if you want happiness, buy a Snickers bar. Happiness is available. It's easy to get. But maybe what Jesus is trying to lead us to is not happiness, but something deeper. Something more. Something like joy that can't be taken away no matter what happens. Following Jesus is not about making us happy. It's about saving our souls. We need to take a hard look at our expectations of following Jesus. Did you think this was going to be easier? And what happens when it's not? You get bitter and frustrated? Do you start to force your way back into your own comfort? When things aren't going great, you know, we do go back to the things that made us comfortable at first. And then it becomes clear that we were never following Jesus, but we were following our own comfort. Following ourselves. You know, maybe some of us are studying the Bible for the first time. And maybe you have an expectation that things will be comfortable. I'm sorry to let the cat out of the bag. This is not an easy life. What you're signing up for, what you're wrestling with, what you're studying, is not something that gives you something to do on Sunday mornings. It is not about having the smile on your face. And if you're happy and you know it, you'll clap your hands for Jesus and say amen. You know, like That's not what's going to happen. What you're signing up for is a life where you're denying yourself. It's a life where you will be persecuted by your closest friends, by your family. But I also guarantee you this. It's a life where you're following Jesus. And I believe that my life is in better hands following Jesus than it is my own. Jesus disrupts your life. He's all about disrupting your life. And he disrupts this idea of comfort. So we get that idea out of our head and replace it with something far greater. We won't be comfortable, but we will be walking with Jesus. It's not comfortable, but it is divinely directed. But if you really want that, first things first, you have to make sure that Jesus disrupts the idea that you will be comfortable. The second thing he disrupts is the idea that there are more 
important things than your walk with God. The second guy, he says, he says to another man, and this is interesting, there's only a few people in the Bible that actually get a direct follow me. This is one of them. He says to another man, follow me. But the man replies, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, if there was ever a reason to not do something, it's this one. I mean, how many of us, if we asked anybody to do something, and they said, well, I need to go bury my father, would say, well, get over it. That's like the trump card. Dealing with death in any case, that's the trump card. But Jesus says kind of inexplicably, and honestly, when I first read this, I'm like, Jesus is kind of being a jerk here. He says, with what it seems like, no sensitivity, no compassion, no empathy. He says, Lord, first, or sorry, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What in the world, Jesus? How is this happening? If Jesus is the love guy, how is this working? Well, let's establish a couple things here. First, it is most likely that his father was not dead yet. The reason we know that is that if his father was dead, he probably would have been at the funeral and doing the preparation stuff, which, if his father was dead and he wasn't there, then saying, first, let me go bury my father, Jesus is like, no, you're not, you really don't care that much about it, because if you cared, you'd be there already. So number one, his father was probably not dead. Number two, it is probably more likely that his father was either dying or in poor health or old. And so it was coming at some point in time. And he's like, okay, as the, probably as one of the sons, who knows, could have been the firstborn, as a son, when the father died, he would have had uh, responsibilities to take care of the family. And it actually would have been kind of an immoral thing for him to ignore that. If he ignores all his responsibilities, not good. And, you know, honor your father and mother, Ten Commandments, all of that. But Jesus goes, look, yeah, that's important. But this is more important. And this man, what he's basically doing is saying, look, I have the ability to go and proclaim the, proclaim, uh, the, proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus wouldn't have told him that unless he could have done that. He says, look, this good and right and noble thing, taking care of my family, burying my father, whenever that happens, this is first and most important, and then I'll get around to doing what you're telling me to do. And Jesus goes, no. He's telling, there aren't things that are more important than what I'm telling you to do right now. What he does is he reorganizes the priority. What he does is he disrupts their idea of morality. This man, though, he was trying to excuse his disobedience with a righteous act. Yeah, I know, Jesus, you are dead. Because how many of us say, okay, if Jesus came and looked me dead in the eyes, I would do whatever he said. This guy literally had Jesus come up to him, look him dead in the eyes, and he still gave an excuse. Best excuse ever, except for the only person who didn't take it was Jesus. <laughs> He's saying, look, there is no excuse good enough for disobedience. This man says, it wouldn't be good or right for me to ignore my responsibilities to my father. And Jesus goes, no, it's not right 
for you to reject the call of your Father in heaven. He says it's not right for you to know the truth and be able to proclaim it and not actually go out and proclaim the kingdom. And this is the same for us. A lot of times we can excuse our disobedience and disguise our disobedience with really good moral excuses. Now, I think for us, yeah, for me particularly, if you want to see the creative juices flowing, ask me to do something that I don't want to do. I get all kinds of creative with my excuses. Let's just take, like, I know I need to preach the word wherever I go, make disciples wherever. It's funny, something happens. I'll be, like, walking, let's say, even around the grocery store. I'll get really, really good at at convincing myself. I'll see this guy walking by me like, well, he doesn't look open. What's that even mean? (laughs) Got a big old sign on him saying, not open, don't talk to me. No, I can have the excuse of, uh, I'm grocery shopping here, I've got important decisions to make. Like, do I want no pulp or low pulp? I can't share my faith. I'm using all my energy right now to focus on this. You know, sometimes I get super, I, I construct a strategy. Because I'm like, well, if I talk to them out here in, 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 in regular society, they're going to think I'm weird. So I need to be more socially swathed. And I've got a plan of action. Here's what I'll do. I'll join an intramural team. And I'll get good on that team and win the respect of all my teammates. And then I'll invite the guy out to play with us. And after two or three appropriate times and small conversations, I'll bring up Bible talk, but only if he's interested. And if he comes on out, who knows? Maybe then I'll ask him to study the Bible. I think the Pentagon has less complicated strategies (laughs) than I have sharing my faith. Sometimes... It's, oh, I'm tired. I'm not at my best. I can't share my faith. Or I don't know what to say. Jesus says, leave the less important things behind no matter what. No matter how important they seem to you. And you go proclaim the kingdom. Side note here, following Jesus means you proclaim the kingdom of God no matter what. He says, look, let the dead bury their own dead, and you go proclaim the kingdom. He's using that interchangeably with follow me. Side point, if you don't think that proclaiming the kingdom is necessary to following Jesus, go back and study it out. That's not how that goes. But for, back to the original point, there are things that are more important. Sometimes we can say there are more important things right now. But we don't say it like that. We say, well, I'll follow Jesus, but it wouldn't be right for me to not go ahead and get my degree right now. I need to focus on that. It would not be right to, make, for, to, to not make sure that my kids have the best college resume for their application to college. I can't force them to go to church. They need to do extracurriculars and study more. It wouldn't be right to do that. It's not fair to them. You know, I'll follow Jesus, but it's not right for me to not get the most out of my high school experience. I mean, I need to, I need to live it up. It's not right for me to lose that. It's not, I'll follow Jesus, but it's not right for me to be financially risky and contribute and tie more when I, who knows what that'll mean for my family. It's not right for me to leave behind my friends over religion. It's not right for me to turn my back on my family and our traditions for something that only I believe in. 
Now, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. All these sounds great, but what they are, are their excuses designed to get us to feel about, feel better about not obeying Jesus right away. We need Jesus to kick down the doors and take a sledgehammer to these excuses. Because there there's nothing that's more important than following Jesus. In fact, these things, they're corrupting our lives because they make less important things seem more important than Jesus. Jesus only disrupts the things that corrupt. And ask yourself, what kind of excuses have you been making? What kind of really good reasons have you been giving yourself to not follow Jesus? And maybe it's not even, oh, I go to church and I I read my Bible. Yeah, but what happens between Monday and Friday when you're not in church and you're at school, at your job, in your neighborhood? What happens when you're having that little bump with your spouse, when your kids are acting up? For me, when my roommates don't do the dishes. When you take a look at your bank statement and there aren't as many numbers as there should be. (laughs) What do you do then? Jesus disrupts any excuse that we have and says there is nothing, nothing that I'll accept. Jesus is most important no matter what. Amen? Amen. And the third thing that Jesus disrupts, the third expectation is that there are breaks from following Jesus. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. All right, now seriously, this is the one that took forever for me to wrestle through because this one bothers me. Jesus, let me go say goodbye to my family. We're not talking about an extended stay. Jesus, give me like 10 minutes. I just want to explain to them that I'm not dead, that I'm just going off to follow you. In fact, I want to spread the word to you or spread the word about you to them. Give me a second. And then Jesus says this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. Jesus is explaining that there is no turning back, not even a little. You know, this stands in stark contrast. And go back and study this on your own. We're not going to go there. But there's another story of of somebody being called to follow, or not to follow Jesus, but into the service of God in 1 Kings 19. And it's Elijah and Elisha. Try to keep those straight. Good luck. But basically what happens is Elijah comes to where Elisha was living and staying. And he actually came from a probably wealthy family. He's out in the, the middle plowing his field. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. which he, That's a lot of oxen. He's got oxen for days. He is rolling in the oxen. And what happens is Elijah comes and he throws his cloak over the side, uh, onto the shoulders of Elisha. And that was a very symbolic thing. That, that cloak that Elisha, Elijah had was a prophet's cloak. It would have meant, short, short, the shorting of this, is that it would have meant you are called into the service of God. And Elisha would have known exactly what that meant right away. And Elisha says, here, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Elijah says, okay, go for it. What have I done to you? He literally says that. He goes, go, what have I done to you? Okay, great. 
And he, comes, he goes and says goodbye to his family. Then he comes back and he takes his plows and his oxen and burns them. Burns them. Sacrifices them to the Lord and then sets out. There's a few things that we can get from this. Number one, following Jesus is a higher calling than being a prophet. Literally, the call of Jesus says you can't go back and say goodbye to your family. Whereas Elisha, which by the way, Elisha, go back and study his life. He did more epic things than Elijah. But your call to follow Jesus is more hardcore and intense than that. And the second thing is how Elisha went after following. He said, I'm going to take this stuff and I'm going to burn it. I'm not going to leave it here. I'm not going to put it in the barn. You know, come back as a fallback plan. This isn't my backup plan. I got no plan B. The oxen are gone. It was not a great business move. But I'm following God. And I think it's interesting. When we come back to the, to, to the story here in Luke 9, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for his service in the kingdom of God. I wondered if that word looks, what was going on there? And I, I looked through a bunch of different translations. I went back to the original language to see if what looked meant. And I was like, well, maybe it was like, you know, a turning or a going back or, you know, maybe like a letter or something. I, I, I'm like, maybe it's a metaphor. Uh, that word there, look, is almost always used as looking with your eyes. All it is is a gaze. And it, sometimes it can even be looking in your mind's eye. I think all of us could get behind the fact, hey, if you follow Jesus and then you turn around and you go back, we can all get behind that. You can't do that. That doesn't count. That's not discipleship. Most of us understand that. But what Jesus is saying here is that you can't even look. You can't even gaze. You can't even, in your mind's eye, entertain that. In fact, the word that he uses there is blepos, which is normally used to say, hey, look and be on your guard. Like, be alert. Be warning. You can't even go back and look like hoping that it comes back your way. Sorry. You know, this man came to Jesus promising that he would follow. And all he wanted was a brief window to look back at what he was leaving behind. And then he was all yours, Jesus. But Jesus disrupts that and says, not even a little bit. He defies the Elijah, Elisha call. And he says, not even a little bit is okay. Jesus disrupts the expectation that you can take time off. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we looking back? This is particularly for those of us that have been disciples for a while. If you've been around for a little bit, this is a huge question for us. Now, how would you know if you're looking back? My question would be, are the convictions that you had at first, have they started to die down? I'm not saying, I know that different, different times, different points in life, seasons of life, things change. But the heart of conviction doesn't change. You know, did you used to have a conviction that you would share your faith with somebody every day? but now you're lucky if you do it once a week? You used to have a conviction that I'm always going to be studying the Bible with somebody. And now you're lucky if you can hop in and study once a month. You used to have a conviction that I will always have people that I'm trying to bring out to church or Bible talk. And now you can't remember. It's, it hasn't been weeks since it's happened. It's been months or years. 
Did you used to have a quiet or used to have a conviction about I will have a quiet time with God every day? And now you're just trying to grab some time in the car on your way to work. Do you used to have a conviction that we will have family devotionals every week? And now it's kind of like, well, we'll, we'll do it on big occasions. Did you used to have a conviction that your contribution would be steady, steadfast? You wouldn't have integrity about it and be generous. And now it's kind of like, well, do we really need to give 10%? Let's not be legalistic about it. Now those convictions started to die down, maybe not fully gone, and that's the thing, but we're looking back. Maybe looking back on, man, you know, this is kind of my life before I was a disciple. It's a little bit more comfortable. Maybe some of it's not even looking back. Maybe it's just looking around. Now other things are getting our attention. Our eyes are off Jesus. You know, I think it's crazy, but it's that little area, that little brief window that we look back that lets our desires come back into our hearts and buy up real estate. You know, I know the stories of the people that are in this room. Some of you guys in here are my personal heroes in the faith. I know about the street preaching. I know about the hopping a bus to the other side of the Hampton Roads area to try to show your faith and evangelize the campus ministry. I know about how many visitors and people you study the Bible with. I know about the convictions that have happened in your family. I know those things. I've heard about those things. They inspire me. But are we looking back? Are we looking back on comfort? Are we looking back on making things easier for ourselves? We can't do that. And when we start to do that, that's where sin starts to buy up real estate. You know, for me, that's what happened for me. This is, I told you I'd tell you a little bit about my life. No, but I, uh, this is years and years ago, but back in 2006, uh, I started dating a, a sister, and we dated for three years. And uh, man, it was, it was one of those like, you felt like best friends, everything was good. I was saving up for something small and circular. I was making some progress with that. You know, I, 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 went, I went through so many pains to make sure our relationship was pure before God. And then I started to kind of look back on the life that I was living before I was a disciple, which is, I'm, I'm a, my natural state is incredibly impure. Messing around with the girls that would let me looking at pornography, that was my life. And I thought I'd come to a point where like, well, I'm beyond that. I'm good. I'm safe. You know, I'd built that, that relationship with this girl, and you know, over time, it started, the conviction started to die down. You know, our boundaries that we had set up, well, you know, it's okay if we're in the car by ourselves. You know, it's okay that we're in, you know, my dorm room as long as the, the door is open. You know, we'll talk after midnight. And then the physical boundaries started getting pushed. As I started to look back and started to look back, and I'm like, well, it's okay. You know, over time, this is over a period of several months, actually like a year, all of a sudden, and this is crazy, I was about to get hired to go on staff with the church in Blue Ridge to be an intern that led the James Madison University campus ministry. Everything was coming together. I had the girl. I had the job. I was doing well in school. I'm the big man on campus. And all of a sudden, because I didn't have the self-control, me and my girlfriend were immoral. 
And all that came out. And I remember sitting at, at the Booker's kitchen table for a couple hours, just pouring the story out and feeling sick to my stomach about how much I'd left it, left or let in, and how much I'd been looking back. I left from that three-hour session, not going into the ministry, and without a girlfriend. And oh, by the way, I needed to read a letter of an apology to my entire campus ministry. From the high to the low, my life was shattered, broken, in the matter of hours. My life was broken, disrupted, into a million pieces. I'm like, God, how did... How did you let me get here? What? And, and then looking back, the only person I had to blame was me. And as I started to think about it more and more and more, I'm like, man, you know, Jesus just curb stomped me. Broke into my life because if it had kept going that way, it really would have been ruined. And for me, why today is, is a huge part for me is that that time in my life was, he shattered that, but that was the first time I saw grace for what it was. Because it was the first time I saw myself as the wretch that I really am. A deceitful, immoral, liar. But if Jesus didn't disrupt that, he never would have been able to put the pieces back together. You know, I stand before you today and the stuff that's going to happen later, getting, going, you know, being appointed as an evangelist, I'm like, this is God's grace. Because today I get to see how God has put my life back together after disrupting it so completely. Jesus wrecked my life, and thank God he did, because I would have done it myself. But then it would have been beyond repair. You know, I think today we've seen how Jesus disrupts our expectations of him. You know, we've witnessed how he disrupts our expectation that things will be comfortable, and how we need to have sober judgment of the things to come. We've seen and been a little freaked out and how he disrupts our expectation that Jesus will let us pursue things above him. And how we urgently need to give Jesus free reign and priority over everything in our lives. We've been shocked at how he disrupts our expectation that we can't break from discipleship for even a second. And how we need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, we've got to open up our arms wide and brace ourselves for Jesus to disrupt our lives. Now imagine if that happened. Imagine if we went out to say, Jesus, wreck me. Wreck my life. Because I'll do it without you. Imagine what would happen if we said, look, you come in, do what you need to do. Put me back together. Can you imagine the amazing stories that would be in here? The stories of reconciliation. Jesus had to disrupt our marriage, but he put it back together. Jesus disrupted my impurity, but he put me back together and allowed me to be pure. He disrupted my life and my comfortability, my comfort zone. He shattered it. But now I get to live a life radical for him. Brothers and sisters, let's open ourselves up to that. Embrace the call. And in the end, when the final piece is set back in place and we view the masterpiece that is a life following, with Je following Jesus, we can say with confidence, thank God that Jesus disrupts. Amen. Amen.